Hello, here is a conversation with Jeff Blaze. Jeff is a postdoctoral research scientist at Columbia University, where he's working on statistics and machine learning. I was eager to meet him because of his contribution to GPyTorch, a library on Gaussian processes in Python, in the PyTorch ecosystem. In fact, we also talk about the, his work uh, with Meta and uh, with, the, with the Pyro community, let's say. Uh, so uh, we started talking about Gaussian processes and his research, which focuses on Gaussian processes, kernel machines, and the, the relationship these topics have with uh, machine learning and neural networks in particular. Um, so yeah, we, we talk about uh, the value of uh, the virtue of complexity, let's say the, the, the value of over parameterization in, uh, in machine learning models. And in particular, uh, the, the use of uh, ensembles for uncertain quantification. His research uh, recently focused, however, on the on the limitations of ensemble techniques for uncertainty quantification in particular, and uh, in uh, looking for ways to, to to do better. Let's say so. We, we talk about this. I think the best way to introduce him is to read this uh, research statement, which you can find on his website, and then I let you enjoy the conversation. Machine learning has produced extraordinary predictive capabilities. But the success of these powerful methods is often limited to accuracy on stationary data. The next decade will increasingly require predictive models as building blocks of larger decision-making pipelines, where they will be exposed to non-stationary data, and errors from models will propagate downstream. Such settings require the capacity for general reasoning, including inductive biases that capture what is known beyond observed data, it asks how to extrapolate to unseen data, and two, uncertainty estimates that quantify what is unknown due to limited observations. Combining today's modeling power, typically the domain of neural networks, with suitable inductive biases and uncertainty quantification, typically the domain of probabilistic models, is both timely and necessary for the next evolution of machine learning capabilities. The primary technical challenges are adapting the reasoning mechanisms of probabilistic models to work with neural networks, while reducing their computational overhead so such mechanisms are practically viable. Thank you, Jeff, for, for your time, for this conversation. Um, and thanks for the whiteboard, as I just said. Um, so um, a bit of context uh, so that uh, I can uh, squeeze the best out of you on how I encountered your work. Uh, so it was in your uh, being a contributor in GPyTorch, um, which is about Gaussian process uh, regression. And I guess uh, your novelty is about the, the ability to parallelize some of the computations associated with them. So I'll ask you something about that later, but um, mostly because in CrunchDAO we work on ensemble learning and the value of uh, ensembles in, uh, in uh, Bayesian inference. I think that's the best, the, the, the most general framework to think about these things. Um, and uh, you, you came out recently with a couple of uh, really interesting works for me, which uh, showed the, why the, they work, uh, these deep ensembles, uh, uh, the value of diversity and the risks of uh, diversity in the ensembles and uh, yeah and why they don't work they could not work how can we do better than deep ensembles so um, I guess we can start from this uh, part of your research if you can absolutely us to, to what you've been digging into right so this uh, this series of projects came out of um, one thing that I've always been interested in in my research is uncertainty quantification, and in particular thinking about um, how do we quantify uncertainty, uh, or how do we express uncertainty when the model is 
unlikely to be correct. And that's typically going to happen in the cases that I'm particularly interested in when, for example, a model is um, inputs to the model don't represent anything that has been seen before in the training data. So that's a case that I've, I've always been particularly interested in. And uh, it goes without saying why this would be important because if you have a model um, and you're making predictions and all of a sudden you get anomalous data or data that the model shouldn't be making predictions on because it's nothing like it was being trained on, you don't want to rely on the model predictions because they are very likely going to be erroneous. You want the model to be able to express that it is unable to make good predictions and so that you can have some sort of graceful failure of a model rather than getting some highly confident but highly erroneous predictions. So this is something I've been really interested in throughout uh, my research. And I've had a lot of failures of trying to create methods that are able to quantify um, this uncertainty. There's a lot of things that work pretty well and everything that I've tried to be a little bit fancier than some of these simple baselines never really seems to actually outperform these baselines. And, and one of the baselines that seems to be really unbeatable was ensembles of neural networks. So uh, in particular, a lot of this uncertainty quantification research that I have been doing has been focused on quantifying uncertainty in neural networks, where I'm assuming that the neural networks themselves are going to be very large, uh, going to be processing very complex data. Um, so kind of this you know modern neural network world that we, we live in, um, you know where we have neural networks with billions of parameters processing very high dimensional input data. And, and did you focus, sorry, did you focus only on uh, uh, neural networks or over parameterized models in general? Uh, started off with neural networks and then moved a little bit more towards uh, over parameterized models in general mm -hmm. um, and trying to take some of these empirical observations that we had and trying to develop some theory behind it. Um, and through a lot of uh, failures, I kept coming back to noticing ensembles are this very unbeatable baseline when it comes to being able to quantify uncertainty. But at the same time, there was also something that felt a little unsettling about the uncertainty quantification that I got from ensembles. And in particular, there just seemed to be a lot of correlation amongst these different performance metrics. So ensembles, or if you have a single model and you then say have uh, some sort of way of replicating that single model on sampling it, which in the case of neural networks typically comes through, you just train the same model on the same data multiple times, but relying on the inherent randomness of uh, the initialization of stochastic gradient descent, coupled with this you know, very uh, difficult uh, non-convex objective, you're relying on that randomness to result in models that are going to be making some level of different predictions. So when you ensemble multiple copies of this model together, you really, you get it all. You get uh, the um, average prediction. So if you take you know, these outputs and you average them together, that average prediction is going to be more accurate than the, the single model. You will also get better uncertainty quantification because you're now able to use this uh, the variance amongst the, the model predictions as another source of how uncertain your data is. Your data tends to be more robust towards uh, shifts in the uh, in the data. So if your model is observing at test time uh, data that is again like slightly shifted away from what it observed during training, the model fails less than it would if you only had a single model. Um, or sorry, the ensemble fails less than if you only had a single model. So Ensemble seemed to be doing really good across the board on all these different metrics that we care about. But it also seemed there was a really high correlation amongst these metrics. And where in what particular- What do you mean by these metrics, the outputs, all the predictions of the individual? Uh... Oh, oh, sorry, I mean like these different, uh, I guess like benefits that we get from Ensemble. So like in okay. distribution, accuracy, 
uncertainty quantification, calibration, um, accuracy on um, shifted data, all of these different ways that like things that we would want out of a model, especially in these, these settings where we want to be robust, all of those metrics were highly correlated. And that led me down this question of, is the reason that ensembles are perhaps doing better on all of these different metrics, is that because ensembles are somehow fundamentally this different class of models than single networks? Or is it the case that an ensemble is performing better across, you know, on like uncertainty quantification and uh, out of distribution or, or, or robust uh, accuracy just simply because we have a better model? And this, I think, is a why, why this was a very interesting question to me to pursue is um, thinking about why we use ensembles in practice. Um, I think we, we historically have used ensembles because they're better at where the, by better I mean they get better accuracy in distribution and that is a pretty undeniable fact um, this is, there's so much theory uh, historically that has demonstrated this so much empirical evidence so it's just you have combining multiple models together will lead to a better distribute or better prediction on in distribution data um, but now people have started to use ensembles especially in these settings where we really care about robustness where we really care about uncertainty quantification and there's this nice intuition that you have a bunch of models and if they're all making diverse errors that's going to help mitigate that risk of a model making um errors in these settings where we want to be robust but if somehow ensembles are not this fundamentally different class than single neural networks and we could somehow replicate this performance if we had just used a single larger neural network that's a little unsettling because we know that single neural networks aren't that good at uncertainty quantification. They're not that robust. And so this would mean that ensembles are not the answer that we're looking for in this robust setting. So that's really, that, that was a very uh, long-winded, uh, I guess, uh, description of the journey I took to, to get towards investigating ensembles in the first place. Mm -hmm. And where did you end up, let's say? I mean, uh, the, the idea is that uh, uh, if you are able to uh, build a single neural network that behaves like the ensemble of neural networks that you assume to be robust, then this means that this robustness is just, uh, it's just uh, a ghost you, you, are, you, you pretend to, to see. And, uh, and so were you able to, to... Yeah, so em empirically we, we found, and this is a paper that we published at, at NeurIPS last year, um, where the first authors are my uh, lab mates, uh, Taiga Abe and Kelly Buchanan. Um, who are both PhD students um, at Columbia, where I'm doing my postdoc. Uh, what we found empirically is that um, what, what we, the, the experimental setup that we had is we took ensembles of, say, slightly smaller neural networks and compared them to a single large neural network. Um, and we constructed this setup so that the ensemble of slightly smaller models and the um, larger model would get roughly the same accuracy on an in-distribution test data set. So we're controlling now for, uh, I guess, like in-distribution accuracy, like the standard metric that we perhaps care most about. Mm -hmm. And our first, the first thing that we wanted to investigate and, uh, to was- clarify, yeah. in-distribution, you mean that uh, your uh, test data uh, and train data are stationary and belong to the same distribution or not necessarily? Right. Yeah, yeah, drawn from, it, it, it's um, not necessarily a, a term that I, I think is uh, the most rigorous, but I think roughly assuming that we have 
the, the training data and the test data are drawn IID from the same distribution, right. um, as opposed to out of distribution, where we would assume that um, the test data is drawn from a IID from a different distribution right. than the training data. So here we're um, not caring it, about yeah. the, 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 the graceful failure. We right, just exactly. want to see the in, yeah. in not in sample. Yeah. Uh, how did you call it in? Uh, in distribution. In distribution, yes. Yeah, and um, so so we took on um yeah an ensemble of of models and one single model that had the same in distribution um, accuracy. So we're we're essentially controlling for the fact that these models are ha have the same accuracy on, on you know the standard test data sets, um, the ensemble and the large model. And the first thing we wanted to investigate is what exactly are we getting from ensemble variants? So again, where if we, uh, one reason that ensembles are used so heavily is because we can look at the variance amongst the predictions from each ensemble member, and that can be a notion of um, uncertainty quantification that we can use. Um, and intuitively, if our ensemble members all produce the same prediction, then uh, we can trust that prediction um, if the ensemble members are exposed to data that uh, they weren't uh, that doesn't look like anything that's that they saw during the training process, then there's nothing that would, in theory, constrain those models to produce the same predictions, and they would likely produce very different predictions. So, seeing how much the predictions from the component models vary intuitively seems like it would be a very good metric for, um, you know, how much should we trust this prediction? Yeah. Um, what we found though was that the um, variance that we would get from these ensembles was very highly correlated with the expected improvement we would get from say if we instead um had used a larger model so i, I guess to clarify that a, a little bit more what we would do is for on a per data point basis we would say look at what is the amount of variance that is uh we see um on the prediction from each of these ensemble members and then we would also say on that one big large model that we had, we can look at the difference in um, prediction between the large model and a single of the ensemble members. So like the, the difference between a large model and a small model basically. Mm -hmm. yeah. And those two quantities were highly correlated um, with, with uh, and by highly correlated, I, I think that we, we got like an R squared value of like 80 to 85% um, on mm -hmm. a per data point basis. Um, and this held true for both data that looked that was very similar to what the model was trained on, this in-distribution data, and then also this out-of-distribution data, the data that uh, differed heavily from what it saw during training. And what this implied to us is what this variant seems to be capturing is not necessarily some quantity that is related to how much does this data look like something that it was trained on, but instead this variance amongst ensemble members seems to instead be measuring what is the expected improvement we would be likely to get if we had used a more powerful model. And there's, we can get into sort of, um, you know, philosophical arguments about uncertainty quantification and say, what do we want from an, uh, you know, is, is that a reasonable notion of uncertainty? Like uh, how much improvement we would get if we had used a more powerful model. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that that's not exactly what we would want to see because I think we, what we really want um, with an uncertainty quantification measurement is this notion of how likely, or, or you know, how likely is this? Um, would my model have changed if I had trained on a completely different uh, data, uh, on, on completely different data? Um, or how much would my model prediction change if I had, you know, so somehow 
added additional knowledge. Um, and instead, this is basically just saying like, what would a more powerful model do? That's really what the, sim uh, the signal from uncertainty quantification that we got was. And it's also saying that a way that we could replicate these uncertainty estimates from ensembles is we just train one big model, one small model, and we just subtract the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. And that intuitively doesn't really feel like something we would want. Like that's not necessarily a signal that I would trust to say, you know, like shut down this model because it's making wild predictions. All that's basically saying is, okay, when we, you know, chucked a few more parameters in here, we're getting a slightly different prediction. Right, right. So if the two things are correlated, if we don't trust one, why should we trust the other? That's exactly, of, yeah. Uh, um, and so where do we go from here, let's say? Um, that's a, it's a really good question. And I think that I'm not necessarily sure. I, I really don't know where we go from here um, and how we can get better uncertainty quantification. And I think part of the reason behind that is because making neural networks larger and more powerful I believe is inherently making them worse at uncertainty quantification. Uh, there's there's recent work that came out, and I guess it's not too recent anymore. This is within the last five years, but this um, idea of um, what is typically called double descent, um, mm -hmm. which is a way to explain why these large overparameterized neural networks seem to perform so well despite that uh, going against all of our intuitions from classical statistics, and at a high level. The, the trend that was observed is that uh, as you make models larger and larger and larger, um, once they're in the so-called over-parameterized regime where models are essentially able to memorize all the data that they are trained on, mm -hmm. making the models more complex, you know, typically by making them wider or deeper, leads to a lower uh, test set error. And one way of explaining this phenomenon um, is that we are essentially it, it comes down to uh, variant reduction so error often you know in machine learning can be composed into a bias and a variance term where you know the bias term basically measures you know how well can this model actually represent the true underlying uh you know signal that that exists and the variance represents if i were to have used a slightly different you know set of model parameters or a slightly different data set how much would i might i've expected my model to change and our understanding of what is happening with neural networks is counterintuitively, as we're making them bigger, we're getting variance reduction in addition to having very low bias. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, this is really good because this is kind of the secret sauce that we now have to make models better. We can get models with very low bias and by making them bigger and bigger, we end up with less variance and that's a good thing. But at the same time, if we end up with less variance, that means that it's gonna be very hard to perturb these models in ways that is going to get them to produce very different predictions. And so that means that regardless of how I train my models, you know, regardless of what model architectures I use, um, regardless of the, the um, you know, different hyperparameters I use, different initializations, we're not going to get a set of predictions that are going to be very different from one another. Um, and mm -hmm. the way that we know how to create more variance, to create more diversity amongst our models, the only real way we know how to do that is to make our models worse, to sort of, mm -hmm. um, again, kind of like going against this trend of if making our models larger is somehow reducing variance, we should make our models smaller to get more variance. But ultimately what that's going to do is that's going to make our predictions a lot worse. And so we're now going to have an ensemble that maybe has more diverse predictions. And again, this, this set of diverse predictions is beneficial because now our models are going to be making diverse errors, which is going to be this better source of uncertainty quantification. 
but that is going to in turn lead to a model that just doesn't make as good of predictions on data mm -hmm. that we care about in the first place. So that's, that's a very high level and intuitive explanation, but I think that what we're seeing with neural networks is this troubling trend in that making them bigger and more powerful and more able to make these accurate predictions is making them to some degree very um, homogenous and mm -hmm. not able to express work. There's still some level of diversity in the predictions that are being made, but it's very challenging to train neural networks that make predictions in very different ways than other neural networks, even when you change the architecture or the hyperparameters. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very troubling for the field of uncertainty quantification because it shows that maybe to get better uncertainty quantification, we have to make models worse. And that's not a sell that many people are going to accept. Mm -hmm. And there are applications, of course, in which it's desirable to have a, a better estimate than the uncertainty rather than a, a, a low bias estimation. Yeah. Right. That, that, that is very true. Um, I, I think that, uh, it, but I, I think if you had a setting where you really, really needed to be very robust about your predictions, um, perhaps that would be willing to make that trade off. But in, in general, I, you know, m most of my work has been in, in the academic sphere. So I don't necessarily know of, you know, requirements that actual companies would have, but even in settings where you know we're writing papers about uncertainty quantification, we're always reporting, well, this is the in-distribution test set accuracy. And we always we always care about saying, you know, we can still maintain this accuracy and get this uncertainty quantification. And so I think even in in the like most ideal setting where you know you're writing a paper on uncertainty mm -hmm. quantification, you're not actually trying to meet any like performance metrics from a company. I think we even still have this implicit, you know, idea of no, we can't sacrifice this this in-distribution accuracy. And I I think that there's potentially really interesting theoretical work to try to better characterize this trade-off um, to see if actually such a trade-off that does exist. Um, but I, I think it's it's really going to take I think fundamental shifts in the way we approach neural networks and neural network training in order to get better uncertainty quantification or or better notions of uh, diversity in in ensembles, and I I don't think it's going to be like a simple uh, a simple fix. Um, I, and I'm honestly uh, I, I I'm scared to even you know wager a bet of what that's going to look like because I think that it's uh, I, I'm I'm really not sure exactly what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see. Uh, well, this resonates a bit with uh, one of the papers you wrote uh, about the. I mean, for sure, reading your works makes me think a lot about the training process itself, which is all there is, but uh, one tends to underestimate it, and uh, at least myself. And uh, so uh, in one paper, you, you propose the idea of uh, basically storing, uh, while you have this uh, stochastic gradient descent, you, you're going to remember the, the locations, the configuration of the model in which you, you were around a local minimum. And, uh, and then in one training, basically, you're going to end up with uh, uh, an ensemble of models. And, mm -hmm. uh, so I wanted to ask you. This, I mean, it's 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 so simple an idea that it's, I don't know why it's the first time I read about it. Um, it is it a, a complete alternative to to doing an ensemble of, uh, to to train an ensemble of models, let's say with the same configuration, or do you lose something because you benefit, of course, in needing to train only once? Right. Yeah. I think that it. I think you characterize it very well there where I think um, you definitely have a, 
compared to say training an ensemble of multiple models, you definitely have a, a massive gain in, in terms of the training time because you can use just the um, training dynamics of a single model. Mm -hmm. um, but it definitely does not perform quite as well as if you had ensembled models completely from scratch. And I think that that is just because there is, you know, even though I, I think I just made this case that um, the uh, when we train models independently, they're becoming more homogeneous and we don't necessarily have that much diversity amongst, um, you know, these very large modern neural networks. Uh, you even lose what little bit of uh, diversity you have in your predictions, uh, even more so when you're using models, but following the same training dynamics. I mean, you're mm -hmm. not losing it completely. Like there still is, of course, some benefit to uh, to forming an ensemble in this way, but um, it definitely, I, I would say, couldn't replace what you would get from, from an ensemble um, simply because um, there is just a little bit too much correlation between those checkpoints. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And should we, I mean, uh, I don't know if you ever talk about this in your works, but uh, I saw some relation in uh, trying to understand this over parameterization with lenses of uh, random matrix theory. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't know if uh, the fact that uh, the, the initialization, uh, not to think about uh, the, the training process, but uh, the, the set of initial conditions of these ensembles are drawn from uh, a Gaussian distribution. Uh, what, what if we did something different? Uh, can we inform the distribution of the random seeds based on the process we want to fit? Uh, that's a really good question. And I think that's something I've been particularly interested in um, as well. Um, so of, of course, um, there, there's this connection that I, I think has now been known for um, cl close to 30 years, but it's within the last five, six years, I think it's gained a lot of re um, renewed interest in the connection between neural networks and, and kernel machines. Um, mm -hmm. And um, why I'm bringing that up now and thinking about the, you know, if, if we were to use a different set of initial condition, uh, or sorry, like a different distribution to initialize our models from, mm -hmm. I think uh, one interesting uh, lens that we could think about that from is uh, if we were to there, uh, I guess to, to establish this connection between neural networks and kernel machines, neural networks in their infinite width limits uh, tend to act like kernel machines. So um, there's connections between just the random initial, uh, initialized neural networks and Gaussian processes, and then also some more recent connections that show like even as you train these infinitely wide neural networks, they behave like kernel machines where, where these kernels themselves are um, defined through your choices of initialization and uh, random activation functions. And I think why this is, um, why I bring this up and why I think this is really interesting is I think that kernels are this one area of machine learning where we really have good intuitions of how kernels themselves translate into functional properties. So um, what is often called inductive bias in, in, in machine learning or uh, where our inductive bias, I guess, uh, more specifically is this notion that um, uh, we, when we have a certain model, it is going to um, prefer certain, or it is going to perform very well on certain types of uh, on certain types of data. And so, kernels have inductive biases that we can often, um, where we can often translate the functional form of a kernel into the inductive bias that it has. So, for example, using the squared exponential or RBF kernel, which is one mm -hmm. of the most common kernels. 
that has an inductive bias towards it only has support for functions that are infinitely differentiable. Whereas mm -hmm. if you were to use, say, a um, like Ornstein Uhlenbeck kernel, that's going to have um, support for functions that are, are very non-smooth, uh, very jerky looking. And so we, we have these, what, what, and so again, why I bring this up is I think that one thing that I've been really interested in is in thinking about this connection, we could say translate, for example, if we were to use this different initialization of neural networks, this is then the equivalent kernel that it would represent in these infinite width limits. And mm -hmm. that is very powerful because once we have translated things into kernels, I think we generally have good tools in terms of thinking about, well, how is that going to change the functional properties that we have? Um, I do, so I think it's an area that is very underexplored and especially like in the context of ensembles, I, I think it's, it's fair to imagine that if you were to ensemble models all with different initializations, um, uh, or, or not, not just different initial, random initializations, but where the, the distribution of those random initializations is, is itself different. I think that that is uh, potentially an area where we could um, try to add a, a meaningful notion of, of diversity to these neural networks. Right, right. Uh... I, I would hope, uh, I think I got 30%, but uh, could you guide me through and, and the listeners to, to this uh, this idea of uh, this connection? Because also I, I see you got into kernel machines when I said random matrix theory, and, and I heard in the past that we're talking about three things, but it's just one in some sense. Uh, yeah. could, could you guide us through how these uh, infinite dimensional neural networks and these infinite dimensional matrices behave like a kernel machine what's a kernel machine and maybe from there uh, I guess starting to talk about Gaussian processes maybe you are implicitly already doing this in yeah. functional uh, properties and uh, and kernels. Yeah. so right right so a, a kernel machine is um, in some sense it's uh, uh, it's a type of a machine learning model where we are um, expressing uh, the model essentially through inner products between uh, the um, data that we want to make predictions on and the training data that we have. And when I'm saying inner products, I'm, I'm meaning inner products in, you know, not necessarily just taking like the dot product mm -hmm. of, um, you know, two vectors that you have, but potentially embedding your, you know, training and test data into some very, very high dimensional space through some potentially infinite dimensional feature transform mm -hmm. and performing the dot product in that infinite dimensional space. And there are, um, What's nice is that through this thing called the kernel trick, that is actually done in a very tractable way, um, and so it's this, it's a, a very like it's this, uh, I guess sort of like dual representation of a lot of um, models that we, we you know we've used throughout um, in machine learning, and so there's always these these nice connections between these models where, um, you know, we could take, say like linear regression. Um, and we can transform it into kernelized linear regression where we reformulate linear regression in terms of inner products. And then we can, by changing what is known as the kernel function, we can then change the types of, you know, uh, the, the inner product itself, like the, this um, infinite dimensional feature space where we're performing inner products in. Um, and so it, it's, um, there's with pretty much all machine learning models, there is generally um, some sort of connection to to kernel machines, which I think is, is very interesting. Um, and in particular, there there is some historic work from Radford Neal that demonstrates a connection between neural networks and, and kernel machines. Um, and in particular, um, the connection is that if you that that Radford Neal made was if you take a neural network with a single hidden layer, 
-hmm. and you make this neural network infinitely wide and you assume that there um, you are drawing the weights from uh, in both the hidden layer and in the output layer if those weights are drawn from a Gaussian distribution mm -hmm. then this model uh, with random weights converges to Gaussian process in its infinite width limit and a Gaussian process is defined essentially through the choice of kernel function. That, that is like the, the only um, I, I component of, of, of a Gaussian process that, that is essentially defined. And it turns out then what this neural network in its infinite width limit that becomes a Gaussian process, the um, corresponding kernel of that Gaussian process uh, is based off of the choice of a nonlinear activation function that you're using. Um, and I guess, well, here we're, we're assuming that the um, distribution over the, um, the the weights is Gaussian. So, but like, uh, so that part of the model is fixed. But you can imagine um, the scale of the um, of that Gaussian could, uh, you know, be another parameter that changes that kernel. Mm -hmm. And so that is a connection then that in recent years has expanded on and. Um, ha has been made a lot uh, more interesting and a lot more deep. So it, it turns out not just these neural networks with full hit there uh, converge to Gaussian processes as you make these neural networks infinitely wide, but also neural networks with multiple hidden layers also converge to Gaussian processes. Um, and, and correspondingly, now it's not just the our choice of activation function that determines the kernel of this Gaussian process, but the number of layers that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and if those layers are convolutional layers or if they're transformer layers, all of these different layers that we typically use in neural networks, all in these infinite width limits correspond to Gaussian processes. Um, and then there's a, a um, this is of course still assuming that we are um, seeing these, the weights of these neural networks as random, um, mm -hmm. but also we still sort of maintain, um, even if we were to train these weights when we have infinitely wide models, things still behave in a mm -hmm. Gaussian process-like way. They, they, um, when we train these weights, these models behave like kernel linear regression. Um, so the non-Bayesian formulation of, of Gaussian processes with a slightly different kernel known as the neural tangent kernel. So there is this very deep connection um, between um, neural networks and functioning like, I guess, kernel linear regression if we're, we're training the weights or the Gaussian processes, which are the essentially the Bayesian version of kernel linear regression if we're, we're not training the weights. Right, right. And this resonates uh, something I read recently, uh, ridgeless regression. So the idea that uh, you can do kernel, kernel no, I don't understand it completely, but you can uh, uh, go to the to some limit in which things shouldn't work. And in that yeah. region, you behave like you behave better. You have something like the the, the your yeah. parameterization benefit. I don't know if they're related to me. Quant no, it, yeah, it, it, yeah, they're they're absolutely uh, related. So this I, gets back to the the idea of um of uh, the the double descent phenomenon that I that I mentioned earlier. Right. Um, in particular with um, so as you are making these models um infinitely wide, and if you are um training them with gradient descent and you're not using um, any sort of regularization, then the models that these converge to is going to be um, ridgeless kernel regression. So um, essentially like a kernel model where we're not doing any amount of regularization. Mm -hmm. And this has 
always been or like historically was seen as a very uh, bad idea because mm-hmm. uh, kernel models again like they correspond to uh, essentially like linear regression if we have infinitely many features mm-hmm. and infinitely many features is going to be a lot more features than data that we have and in this regime generally where you have way more features than than data it's an under constrained problem and generally seem to be very prone to overfitting so typically when we would have kernel models we would always add some sort of you know typically a ridge penalty to make sure that we are regularizing against having this very complex space but it turns out that um this is a still um, a fairly recent discovery and something I think there's still a lot of, uh, of interesting work on that um, if you set that ridge penalty to zero or equivalently if you train a very very large neural network without any regularization you can still perform very well and sometimes better than if you had any uh, ridge penalty at all right and uh, okay so th- th- you really explained uh, eloquently th- this idea so basically you are mapping your finite dimensional feature space into an infinite dimensional one and then you're you're penalizing your model such that the, the feature exposure it's it's sparse in this infinite dimensional uh, space yeah. sparse or typically or also just um low complexity in general so like the weights are are very small right yeah depending on the yeah. kind of okay because ridge okay right yeah. yes uh and how how do you intuitively get into this aid why does regress regression yeah i i think that uh, better there's a lot of really interesting work that's still coming out to try to better understand it um the best intuitive explanation that i have for why this works is um well first i guess you could imagine if you are observing data that has no where you have no observational noise so the data that you're trying to fit is you know uh, a completely noiseless version of, of the function that you're actually trying to learn then it doesn't matter how many you, you don't really have to worry about overfitting because overfitting right. is a problem of the fact that the, the data that you observe is, is going to be noisy um so having this very complex model is really only a problem because the data that we observe has this observational noise associated with it and when you uh have when you have not a ton of features so if you're in a regime where you have enough features that you can kind of overfit but not too too many of them when the observational noise has to be ascribed to all all these different features you have and if you don't have too many features um the the noise essentially has to thinking about like if i were to take my noise and i were to partition the noise and assign it to to certain features each Mm -hmm. feature is going to be associated with a lot of noise um but if i have infinitely many features I am sort of chopping up this observational noise that I have and ascribing it to all of the, all these infinitely many features that I have. No one feature is actually going to have that is going to learn that much from the observational noise I have. So by having lots of different features, you're essentially hiding your noise in all all of these you know, infinitely many features that you have. But it's a very difficult balancing act because mm-hmm. um, when you have infinitely many features, or you know when you were working um, at the scale of infinity things can go very awry so it definitely has a lot of um dependency on the kernel function that you're using and the data that you have and there's there's lots of really interesting work showing that if you you know change your kernel in certain ways then um rigid regression totally blows up but then if you know you change your kernels in in other different ways then it starts to work really well so it's it's definitely an area that there's still a lot of active research in um and 
definitely one there where there's still a lot of mysteries to uncover. Right. Right. Um, let me let me try to go back to the ground, let's say, and uh, yeah. ask you a more practical question. No, I mean I'm, I'm loving it, but because uh, um, I, I I feel I'm not as uh, strong on Gaussian processes as I would like to, and uh, yeah. um, so let's say I I have my data which uh, could be yeah. temporal data, but I have my statistics. I have my, my, my observations. I know they're noisy. I, do, I know they want to do inference on them. Um, and let's assume I want to you put on the lenses of Gaussian processes. Uh, yeah. How do I move from there? And maybe we can also talk about uh, uh, GPyTorch in this context. Yeah. But um, uh, how do I get, how do I pick my kernel basically? If that's all there is. Uh, yeah. Um, that's a good question, and I think not necessarily one where there's a you know a straightforward answer to per se. So I think um, it depends a lot on the type of data that you have. And so uh, if you are say working in a low dimensional setting, so let's say that you only have three or four inputs, mm -hmm. and those inputs are descri uh, they're described very well by Euclidean geometry. So uh, I guess maybe backing up a little bit. A we, uh, a kernel function is, in some sense, a similarity function. Um, it's it's not necessarily it's it's not exactly the same, but it, it's capturing this notion of similarity. So I would, um, for example, want to have my kernel function to be large if two points are, are very similar, and I would want it to be you know, close to zero if they're um, very independent of one another, potentially even negative. Um, and so, if my points are described. Like I'm in a low-dimensional space, and the, the the inputs that I have are um, behave with a Euclidean, ge or they behave well like under a Euclidean geometry. So thinking that like if I look at the Euclidean distance between two points, that's a good notion of similarity. Mm -hmm. Then we have lots of kernels that work really well um, in these settings. So there's the squared exponential kernel, which I I, I just um, which is sort of like the the classic kernel that people use. There's the Matern family of kernels, which also behave similarly to the squared exponential kernel, but they're they don't have quite the same smoothness requirements. Um, those are, I think, are like good general purpose kernels that people often use when you have this sort of like low dimensional data. Um, the more you know about your problem, the easier it is to choose a kernel, and the more it's always easier to know more things about your your problem when you're working in a low dimensional space. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're working with time series data, um, you know where with with a time series that's kind of that's a very one-dimensional problem or you know maybe you have a couple other um variables that are your inputs but there's the, the time component is this this one input dimension that you know a lot about you know, if you expect that your your time series is going to have um a periodic nature to it there's there is a periodic kernel that you can use um if you think that there's going to be a monotonic trend um there's certain kernels that you could use there so the more that you know about your problem uh, the easier it is to choose kernels. And what's really powerful about kernels as well is there is this compositional um, nature to them. So you can, mm -hmm. the if you add two kernels together, that is a kernel. If you multiply two kernels together, that's a kernel. And this allows you to then also create more complex functional properties. So if I think that my data is going to be mostly linearly increasing with a little bit of a periodic trend and then some other kind of smaller trend that will go away from that, I could choose to say my kernel is going to be 
uh, the sum of a linear kernel, which is going to capture that mostly linear trend, plus mm -hmm. a periodic kernel, which is going to capture that periodic trend, plus maybe a, a squared exponential kernel just to capture, you know, whatever other effects I might have missed from those kernels. Um, in higher dimensions, it's a little bit more challenging because I think there um, we don't, it's harder to, un we don't necessarily know the functional properties as well in higher dimensional spaces because it's a little harder to reason about these higher dimensional spaces and a lot of the classic kernels that we do use like the squared exponential kernel or the mature kernels those assume that we have again like it's measuring similarity through uh euclidean geometry and euclidean geometry isn't a very good way to describe a high dimensional mm -hmm. space um so that's definitely a case where i think gaussian processes really shine the most or at least that's where we've managed to make uh, to, to have the best successes with Gaussian processes on these more low-dimensional problems, and especially when we're able to, um, where, where we have expert knowledge about our data that we can mm -hmm. um, inscribe in the kernel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you see value in uh, starting from a high-dimensional uh, system, uh, compressing and performing Gaussian processes? On Th there's yeah, I, there's been um, a bit of work in this. So um, Andrew Wilson, who is a, a, a collaborator of mine, had a series of papers uh, called um, Deep Kernel Learning, as he called it. And the idea is is very compelling and very um, interesting, where you would you, you take your high-dimensional data and you use a neural network to essentially learn a low-dimensional embedding of your data, which then you feed into a kernel, like, say, a squared exponential kernel, and then perform Gaussian process regression on that. And I would say that it is um, definitely beneficial in many problem settings, but it is also not a panacea. Um, mm -hmm. And in particular, I think it, it depends on the data and the data properties that you do have. One the huge advantage of it is that you now are able to take these higher dimensional problems, you're able to you know, essentially extract the relevant information and then you get all the benefits that you would get from a Gaussian process, mm -hmm. the uncertainty quantification, um, the, the uh, being able to like optimize hyperparameters in closed form, um, all of these very mm -hmm. nice properties. Um, but it is also possible that you know you, you could essentially have the neural network do all of the heavy lifting, so that the the mm -hmm. latent space that you get up or that that you end up with is you basically already solve uh, mm -hmm. you, you know you basically already solve the regression problem you want to solve in that latent space and then your Gaussian process is just learning a, a glorified identity map so mm -hmm. it's I, th I think it's definitely a very promising direction and one where we have seen a lot of early successes but I think that there's still um, it, it's definitely there's room to improve upon that I believe mm -hmm. right great um, I, I just uh, I, I had a question uh, because we're working recently on uh, on the use of non-local operators, operators, so fractional calculus mm -hmm. to, to to deal with uh, no stationarity, and mm -hmm. uh, I don't even know what's the question, but uh, like uh, I, I, I don't know. I have uh, in my head uh, this idea of uh, lifting, uh, performing inference, and then coming back to physical space and say something mm -hmm. about your inference, uh, the original inference. I, I see a similarity in having a non-stationary process uh, performing a non-local uh, transformation that gives you some statistical stationarity properties, performing inference and then come back. Um, yeah. Can uh, Gaussian processes be integrated in this in dealing with non-stationarity in this sense with, 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 the, with the use of non-local operators? 
Yeah, because I, kernels I are think, local operators. Yeah, there there are some um, non-stationary kernels that people have developed. Um, they generally tend to be very, uh, they tend to be a lot more complicated, and that that's not inherently surprising because when you are assuming that your process is stationary, that's a you know that very much simplifies the complexity. The space of stationary um, processes is a very small subspace of the station of or uh, of the space of all possible processes. And so if you want, so defining stationary kernels is relatively straightforward. Mm -hmm. um, defining non-stationary kernels is you have to figure out how I'm encoding my non-stationarity and where my non-stationarities are going to occur. And right. that is a, a much more difficult uh, challenge in general. Um, so you may struggle more the... in trying to fit that thing than uh, you, you, you rather use stationary tools in non-stationary settings and maybe you. Yeah. That that I think is there's kind of two approaches I think people have taken, which is yeah you either try to define these you you you, you try to define these transformations um, where you could either you know be defining a, a non-stationary kernel or you could be defining some sort of warping function of your data to make it more mm -hmm. stationary and then um, or yeah you just sort of assume that well there's gonna my data is non-stationary but stationarity is so much simpler so i'm just going to go mm -hmm. ahead and use a stationary function and just you know hope it works really well um i think there's a lot of very interesting um ways that gaussian processes can be used in these settings and i think there's a lot of areas that are unexplored and certain areas where there's very ideas that are very theoretically nice but potentially difficult in practice you know mm -hmm. due to the complexity of bayesian inference uh one class of models that i'm I'm very interested in, but I'm worried about their practicality is um, Gaussian processes, um, where the idea is it's it, it, this was proposed um, in uh, 2013 um, uh, um, out of Neil Lawrence's group, uh, essentially trying to create this hybrid Gaussian process neural network model. You basically just stack a bunch of Gaussian processes on top of each other. So you take you, you have some sort of data, you feed that into a first Gaussian process, and that's going to produce some outputs, and then those outputs get fed into another Gaussian process, and you know you maybe do this a couple of times, however however many you want. And one reason that I'm particularly interested in them is because I think that there is a way where these models can be used to essentially define a softer version of stationarity. Um, what I mean by that in particular is that I believe that if you construct these deep Gaussian processes in a particular way. What you will get is you will get a function that is biased towards stationarity, but it has the ability to learn non-stationarities when it is appropriate. And this, why I think this is such a compelling idea is because I think that that describes a lot of time series that we, we see in practice is um, if data was just very, very non-stationary, like that makes it a very uh, difficult problem to learn. And often we want to resort to learning, uh, having non-stationary effect, non-stationary effects Typically, it's because you know there's going to be some sort of blip in our data. Like here was some sort of anomalous event that happened, um, and we just you know we we want, uh, but like you know left of that anomalous event and right of that anomalous event, things are pretty stationary. Um, and so I think that deep Gaussian processes are one potential solution where we can um, essentially again like have a function where it's going to it's going to be biased towards learning a stationary process, but it's going to have the power to bypass that bias in these areas where we need a bit of a non-stationary effect. Um, but again, getting these models to work in practice is quite challenging because we lose the 
huge benefit of Gaussian processes, which is the ability to perform closed form inference. Um, and so we're going to have to resort to approximate inference techniques and getting those to work well is, is always a bit of a challenge. And, and I think it also makes the models harder to, to sell to the community. So. Right, right. And is this? Uh, I'd like to talk a bit about the, 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 the what what one can do, starting opening a notebook and opening the uh, GPyTorch. So yeah, uh, I have my data. I select my kernel. What next? Uh, what uh, what can I do? How can I leverage uh, the, 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 the toolbox? Let's say from a more practical. Yeah, standpoint? well, the thing that I think everyone should always start with is, you know, can I treat my problem as a simple regression problem, and then um, you know, and simple regression problem meaning, you know, I have my, I have my inputs, I have my, you know, I've chosen my kernel, I have the output that I'm trying to predict, and I'm going to, you know, you know, try to force whatever I can into, the, you know, the single output that I have. I'm assuming that it's, um, you know, a real valued output, not, you know, like a, a binary or, or multi-class classification problem. Mm -hmm. And can I, you know, if I can formulate it like this as a regression problem, then I would just start using the simplest model that's available that we have, which is the, the you know the simple Gaussian process regression model, and see how well this works. Um, and if that works, you know, and let's great. say like uh, there's yeah. everything is deterministic here. Once I select mm -hmm. the kernel, once I have my y, my x, uh, let's yes. say the, the the input data, yeah. the the the, the yeah. output I want to predict to, to do inference on. The, yeah, there will be um, there's going to be some uh i guess some amount of non-determinism to some degree because um you will once you've selected your kernel there's you know typically hyperparameters associated with the kernel so common ones are like length scale and output scale and mm -hmm. you want to select the best hyperparameters uh you can do that through closed form optimization so using uh, stochastic gradient descent right. um to try to optimize these best hyperparameters but that optimization problem is going to be non-convex and so you know depending on how you you know you choose your initial hyperparameters and you know whatever um other stochasticity you know you might have in the system like you might end up with slightly different hyperparameters but essentially for all intents mm -hmm. and purposes it's, it's going to be deterministic right and that is the place that so where now this model would fail um and where you might need to go more complex is i think one of two regions one is you have too much data um Gaussian processes are, I think, many people I know who have studied machine learning have at one point in time fallen in love with Gaussian processes, and a lot of people have fallen out of love with Gaussian processes because they just don't scale well, or that's historically been uh, the statement that people have made. Um, and so you might need to then resort to making some level of approximations or using some of the, I guess, like scalable technology that we have in GPyTorch. Um, which is going to be making some approximations under the hood to, to try to make it so that your model can scale up to these larger and larger data sets. And that's going to require a little bit of expert knowledge, sort of depending on what does your problem look like? What kind of properties can you say about, you know, your your, your data? Um, but I think more importantly, the the big thing is like, how much data do you have? That's going to really, I think, influence what is what choice of scalable method that, that you use. The other way in which um, you might need to go beyond just this simple Gaussian process model that we offer in GeoPyTorch is if you say, if your problem is a little bit more complex than just something that can be described through simple um, uh, regression. So it could be that, you know, you have multiple outputs that you're trying to predict. And so you need some 
um, what uh, the terminology we use is like a multitask uh, Gaussian mm -hmm. process model. So something that's able to predict multiple outputs. Um, or you could be you um, could have a non-Gaussian observation model. So for example, maybe what you you want to do classification rather than mm -hmm. regression. Or you could assume that uh, your observations are very noisy, and so you you want to assume uh, you're assuming that your data isn't best described through you know some latent function with like Gaussian observation observational noise, but maybe heavy-tailed observational noise. Um, so if you add any levels of these complexity to your model, then you will need to use a, a completely different class of models in addition to the you know uh, issue of scalability that you might also need to tackle. Okay, okay. can you? Keep going on this uh, idea of fatalness because uh, you know uh, heavy kurtosis. How do you call it? There's a word for that, but heavy kurtosis distributions yeah. char are characterizing my everyday work. So, um, yeah, how would you deal um, with uh, with them in a Gaussian process framework? Right. So, the um, one unfortunate thing is as soon as you um, sort of switch your your model away from having a from modeling things with Gaussian observational noise is you lose the ability to do closed form inference. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I guess like maybe backing up a little bit, the I think the, the key selling point behind Gaussian processes more than anything else is, you know, we, we can, there's a lot of, you know, very nice um, theoretical things you can say about them. They're very compelling in, in all sorts of ways, but from a very practical perspective, what makes them very compelling is they are the most powerful model that we have where we can do exact Bayesian inference in closed form. And in particular, what this means is often for for Bayesian models of, of any amount of complexity, um, you uh, if you wanted to compute a, a posterior distribution, you it would be intractable to try to have some sort of analytic expression for that posterior distribution. You'd have to resort to you know MCMC or some sort mm -hmm. of um, approximation scheme. Gaussian processes are essentially, they can model any possible function that you would want to model. And at the same time, you can also compute their posterior distribution in closed form. And that's, I think, what makes them so compelling and so powerful. Um, and, and that's, I think, why people have been drawn to them because you, you, you don't have to, you know, there, there's, you still have all of these choices of, you know, what kernel function do I use? You know, maybe how do I scale, scale up these models? Like there's still a lot of choices you have to make, but you don't have to deal with the, you know, headaches that are involved with, um, you know, do I use a Gibbs sampler or mm -hmm. HMC? How long do I wait for it to mix? Oh, wait, it didn't mix. So let me try again for another two weeks. You know, all, all of that goes away. Um, and unfortunately, that comes back now as soon as you want to, um, if you have a non-Gaussian observation model. So if you're assuming that your observations aren't just, you know, an observation plus some Gaussian noise, you now have to resort to using some level of um, approximate inference. You, you no longer get that mm -hmm. nice close form posterior. Um, and that is, that's a bummer. Um, unfortunately, or like fortunately there are, um, at least in GPyTorch, we're using um, a series of techniques that have been developed through, you know, a host of many brilliant researchers to try to make this approximate inference as, as painless as possible. Um, in particular, we're using uh, variational inference, um, you know, which was pioneered, you know, through like uh, Mike Jordan, uh, uh, Martin Wainwright, Dave Fly, and then uh, really adapted uh, two Gaussian processes through uh, Mikhail Tsitsias and James Hensman. Um, and uh, this framework then is, is very nice because it's very composable. So it allows us then to, we sacrifice the ability to do closed form Bayesian inference, but we can get pretty good approximations and it allows us to use any type of um, observation model we want. So we could then, so, so now in addition to choosing your kernel and mm -hmm. 
you know, saying, okay, I, I am going to use variational inference, you can now choose an observation model that maybe deals with the noise properties that you that you might have. So um, student T distributions, I think, are generally my favorite observation model for, mm -hmm. for when I assume that I have heavy observational noise. Um, and then you get a, you know, a the um, degrees of freedom parameter, you can play around with that mm -hmm. to, to say how heavy tailed I think that my data is. Um, but th but that's only the starting point. I think that you can really um, explore this space a lot more. I think there's a lot more work that could be done to think about what are different observation models that I could um, use or different distributions of, of the observational noise that I expect to see that could potentially describe the, the domain uh, um, that I'm working in better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, can you can you dig a bit more in the, uh, you mentioned variational inference. Uh, uh, what, what role does it play in the context of uh, version processes? Right. So, um, for, uh, so again, for if you are doing things where you are assuming that your um, outputs follow a Gaussian observation noise model, again, you can do exact inference. You don't need to do any and sort of And this is regardless inference. of the complexity of the kernel. Regardless of the complexity of the kernel, you might you might have to make numerical approximations right. um, to compute that posterior distribution. But the posterior distribution, there is an analytical form that, if you have a nut compute power, will be done in polynomial time. Um, Right. Um, as soon as you have a non-Gaussian observation uh, model, now you need to res now the posterior cannot be computed in closed form. So right. instead, um, you have to resort to yeah to some so sort of variational inference as a as an alternative yeah. to, to Markov chain Monte Carlo. You mentioned. Uh... Yeah, yeah. I think variational inference um, has, I think, it is perhaps the the best choice in in um, this problem. I think that there's a lot of as opposed to MCMC, and, and I think that there's a number of reasons for why I think variational inference is, is the best choice. Um, the first, I think, has to really do with the, um, I think, complexity of this. So, so typically, um, where I think a lot of where MCMC has really shined um, historically in, in um, uh, uh, Bayesian modeling is typically when we are trying to infer. Uh, a very small number of latent variables. So, you know, may maybe perhaps our model, it's like there's there's 10, 20, maybe 100 latent variables that we are trying to infer. Um, and MCMC, uh, its convergence generally does not work well with, with the dimensionality. It's, it, um, mm -hmm. I, I'm not super super familiar with the bounds, but like the more the more latent variables that you are are trying to infer, um, the slower your, um, your 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 Markov chains are going to mix generally, um, but you know if you have only you know two three ten even a hundred uh, latent variables like that that that's pretty manageable. Mm -hmm. um, with the Gaussian process though, the latent variables that we are trying to infer is essentially the function evaluated at every training data point and every testing data point that we could possibly have. Um, and okay. that could be a number that's in the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And there's already going to be certain computational issues associated with, you know, how do I even compute like conditional distributions? Um, you, you know, you know, if I'm conditioning on certain values uh, of these latent variables, like computing those conditional distributions, that can already in and of itself be very uh, computationally costly. But just thinking about how long it would take for, um, you know, Markov chain to mix when you have, you know, thousands or potentially millions of latent variables that that is something that now is that just that dimensionality is, is starting to look very scary um variational inference is is nice because um it essentially converts 
um, approximate Bayesian inference into an optimization problem and an optimization problem that we can solve through gradient descent. So we can now leverage a lot of the technology that we've especially developed around these neural networks where again, we are optimizing, you know, millions, billions of parameters. It's now working similarly in, in the case of, uh, of approximate inference. We're now able to, um, we're converting our um, approximate inference problem to an optimization problem. We, um, even if we have thousands more latent variables, that's something we know how to deal with now through through the technology we've developed through through deep learning. Right, right. And does this relate? I, I remember in in uh, digging into how's it called uh, Nats, Emilio uh, Monte Carlo, and things like that. I remember um, mm -hmm. uh, getting into some work. Um, how's it called? Uh, done in Fermilab on uh, normalizing flows. Uh, normalizing flows. Does um, it relate it's, it's a to bit variational? Different. It's a, it's a different concept. Because okay. I remember yeah, them yeah, well, reading them as an alternative to these uh, Markov chain Monte Carlo techniques. Right, right. Normalizing flows, I think, are um, that is in particular a way of like how could I learn a distribution that I could um, right, right, could could sample from. Um, I think that. Sorry, I'm going to start that answer over again. <laughs> um, Normalizing flows, I think, have typically been used mostly in um, generative modeling. Um, and I think that there has been some work that has looked to use that as an approximate inference technique. Um, but um, variational inference, I think, still is, um, I think, one of the, at least in the machine learning community, one of the, the go-to ways for, for doing this approximate inference. Um, and in particular, because um, with normalizing flow, there's still some work you have to do in setting up layers in a certain way and you know training things in a certain way whereas i think with, with with variational inference it really just nicely translates into optimization like hierarchical optimization problems that are just so similar to what we typically see with neural networks and mm -hmm. and that is just a really easy space to work in nowadays right fascinating uh, uh yeah really really interesting uh, particularly because re recently i've been looking into i i've been seeing gradient descent everywhere in particular uh, in uh, in uh, in using convex optimizations as layers of uh, of, of of models and uh, mm -hmm. and and then propagating uh, gradients through uh, through them and uh, hoping to even I don't know have uh, uh, the gradient of uh, constraints of the convex optimizer or some parameter defining some variable in the optimizer. So I guess uh, variational yeah. inference could play a role through these more complex models as well and uh, Gaussian process as well. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think like that's what makes it it so um, so so powerful, and and yeah, I think like the the work with the differentiable convex optimization, I, I know that came out of Zico Coulter's lab. I'm blinking on the the, the first author's names right now, um, but I, I I really admire that work. I think it's really cool, and I think it really speaks to this this paradigm that we have now in machine learning, which is is this paradigm of differential uh, mm -hmm. programming, where if you can translate something into something where you can compute gradients. That's just, you know, we know how to optimize that, and and that's, uh, you know, it, it's it's become this powerful methodology that I think has really, it was always sort of prevalent in the machine learning community, but especially within the last decade, it's you know, with the success of neural networks, it's just taken the machine learning community by storm, um, and I think it it creates this compositionality that I think is is so powerful, and I think that's one thing I'm I'm really excited about and something that when I work with practitioners, um, I, I 
am really excited about, like using Gaussian processes as components in these much more complex probabilistic models. Um, I'm, I've done a little bit of a collaboration with some um, astronomers uh, out of the mm -hmm. Flatiron Institute who are using, um, who are, are trying to uh, understand uh, intergalactic dust in the Milky Way, um, which is, I think, is a, is a wonderful term. It sounds like, you know, something out of like a funk album from the 70s, intergalactic <laughs> dust. <laughs> um, it's, but but uh, what, what they are, are doing is they're using Gaussian processes um, to understand this uh the way that this dust performs in the milky way and um what's really cool about it is it's not just you know here's a gaussian process like it spits out something if you're done it's there's so many input and output variables and, and the gaussian process is just this one small component that then mm -hmm. where the outputs of that get transformed by other very complex components of other probabilistic models um and it's i think a really exciting space to work in and it's something that in theory we've we've always been able to do um, or at least we've always been able to formulate these problems. We've always, you know, we could have always written down like this is the, you know, graphical model that I'm imagining where it's like here's some input variables and it gets fed into a Gaussian process and that gets mm -hmm. fed into some other stuff. But I think with the advent of, um, you know, probabilistic programming languages like Pyro, you know, used in conjunction mm -hmm. with 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 GPyTorch or with any number of other Gaussian processes libraries that are out there, I think it's finally a time where we're, these models are actually becoming practical and able to work at scale and easier to work with and, and uh, write down in the first place. Um, I still think there's a lot of work to be done to make these models a lot more accessible and a lot more scalable. Um, but I think it's, it's really exciting to, um, you know, and, and through the power of variational inference, being able to use um, GPs as part of these just much bigger, uh, more mm -hmm. complex systems. Right, right. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, uh, GPyTorch, uh, Pyro, you mentioned, uh, but in general, I mean, I have always been a TensorFlow guy. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, recently, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing uh, maybe because of, I'm drawing into, uh, I don't know, variational inference, I don't know how to call it, uh, the most general way, but uh, the, the PyTorch uh, ecosystem is is another category. I mean, at least to me. I don't know if uh, uh, the, the choice of uh, GPyTorch being in, in PyTorch was... Yeah. That was, I think... Um, we, um, Jake Gardner, who um, was my, my collaborator, who I started the project with, um, and I, I think we started this um, pretty much right after PyTorch was released, and it was the, the hot new thing at the time, and that's why I think we were drawn to it. Um, and it was, it's, I think, always been a, a really phenomenal um, framework to, to work in as a, a, as a researcher and as a developer. I think it's been highly optimized to that. Um, and uh, we've gotten to, we, we've been really fortunate to collaborate with people at Meta um, people who are part of the um, PyTorch team, and they've all been super wonderful and and been able to help us out and you know get some features in, into the um, into PyTorch proper that uh, we've needed. So I think it's mm -hmm. it's always been a, a really fantastic um, ecosystem for us to work in. Um, if I were to start it from scratch today, there's you know um, I I think that there's a chance we could have written it in Jax. There's a chance we could have mm -hmm. um, you know uh, done stuff in TensorFlow or any of a number of these other. Um, frameworks um, and each framework definitely has um, its pros and its cons. Um, but I think that definitely when we started it, and definitely as we started collaborating with the um, Pyro team as well, that was also mm -hmm. based in, in PyTorch. It just seemed like it was the the logical system to to work in, where we had this uh, very strong, um, I guess, community or or mm -hmm. just collection of libraries that were all right. um, worked really well. Together. Because uh, you mentioned Pyro, the, the variational inference performed in GPyTorch is uh, is using Pyro. I mean, are you calling Pyro? 
Uh, some if you if you were using a very simple um, variational model, so so I guess like one where you know you just have like a Gaussian process and some non-Gaussian observation model, and that's it. We do the we do most of the variational inference under the hood um, in GPyTorch, um, and that's just because there's some like very nice, clever GP-specific ways to, to do mm. variational inference in those very simple models. But if you are, we then use Pyro um, for if you want to design more complex models, or in particular where Gaussian processes are part of a larger probabilistic model, mm. then then we hook into Pyro and, and use Pyro to perform variational inference over um, of these other latent variables that are going to be present in um, these probabilistic models. Right, right, I see. Well, that's that's great. Uh, I don't know if I have any more questions, but uh, uh, fascinating work. Um, uh, yeah, I definitely need to look to look into the library, and uh, I have to study your papers. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, really nice talking to you. Uh, I, I would yeah, like to close yeah, it uh, like this, and uh, yeah, I hope to, to 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 connect with you again. Yeah, absolutely, Matea. This is really fun. I'm happy to yeah chat more and um, yeah, thanks for for hosting me on the podcast. Thank you.